0: Listening to Manufactured with Kim Van Der Veer and Jesse Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week
1: in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This week, we got to sit down with Marcia Lanfranchi and Andrew Ola. Both of them wear many different hats, and it's their work at Transformers Foundation
0: that brings them together. Mazela is an independent, sustainable fashion and textile consultant, founder of Colton Diaries, and intelligence director at Transformers Foundation. Andrew is CEO of Ola Inc., a textile development,
1: marketing, and sales organization. In 2004, he started the Kingpin Show, the renowned and first trade show for the denim supply chain. He also spent 15 years working for the Fashion Institute of Technology, FIT, and most recently, in
0: 2020, he worked to help found Transformers Foundation. Transformers Foundation is the unified voice representing the denim industry and its ideas for positive change. It was founded to provide a Zasfra missing platform to the jeans and the denim supply chain and a central point of contact for consumers, brands, NGOs, and media who want to learn more about ethical and sustainable innovation in the industry. In this episode, part one of our conversation,
1: Andrew and Marzia share how they each ended up in the fashion industry and what motivates them to keep going. This takes us into narratives. They are both quite passionate about what they think is missing from the sustainable fashion story and why they think supplier voices
0: should be at its center. All of this takes us to the present. And the launch of Transformers Foundation in 2020. In part two of our conversation, which we've also released today, we get into the details. What is Transformers? Why have suppliers from denim industry come together, and why don't other product segments of the fashion industry have something similar? What are the eight ethical principles, and how exactly will they serve as a constitution for the Ethical Denim Council? If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website,
1: www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking,
0: and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe.
1: Thank you both for, for doing this and Andrew for getting up so early. Marcia, maybe we can start with you and your entry point into the fashion industry.
2: Yeah, sure. I started, well, my entry point to fashion. Um, well, I studied it. So <laughs> I'm, um, I'm a fashion um, designer and textile by degree. But actually, I am not doing that anymore. (laughs) But it was a good entry point uh, from a a design perspective. And I covered different roles throughout my career from um, fabric development to marketing to print design to a lot of different things within suppliers and brands, startups. So it ranges quite a lot. And I think it came from the curiosity of learning about fashion three hundred and sixty degrees, and that was um, that was what brought me to. working in sustainability, and I'm currently as independent sustainable fashion consultant. I'm uh, also the founder of Cotton Diaries, which is a platform, um, uh, gathering a community of cotton experts from uh, researchers. Uh, to seed breeders to farmers and i'm also here today because um i'm also the intelligence director at transformers foundation so yeah i wear many different hats
1: and we'll get into more about what transformers is and your role there in a minute but one of the things that i think is like always just strikes me a lot i mean Mostly on this show, we talk to suppliers, but the people that we talk to who aren't suppliers, a lot of times, like um, for instance, Marsha from uh, Marsha Dixon from Better Buying, or people who really have an interest in supplier perspectives on sustainable fashion. A lot of them, if you go way back into their like origins in the fat world of fashion, they have history as makers.
2: Yeah. And I think I did actually, my first internship was um, at a silk factory in Como. Hmm. And uh, that's when I actually realized uh, by the smells that the factory was um, had on the factory floor, by everything in the surrounding, I realized that there was something that I quite didn't understand fully, but there was something not quite right, that didn't sit quite right with me. And especially because as designers, we didn't understand the amount of waste that we made with all the decisions that, uh, you know, change colors, change this, change that. And uh, yeah, it was there was a a willingness to bridge that gap. Mm. So, yeah. And
1: how about you, Andrew? Can you share a bit about how you ended up in this business and what you do now?
3: Well, I didn't study textiles or design. I studied film and theology. Oh
1: really?
3: And I had a minor in business and I was I failed business. So um I and my father had a textile agency company and in 1973 he asked me if I wanted to sell fabrics for the summer. And he paid me $80 a week. And my first week with commission I made $430 and I thought, wow, I don't even know what I'm doing. I really love this business. that's really how I got started. And then I ended up being full-time part-time while I was going to school. And then he died in my third year in the business. And, um, I bought the company.
1: How, how awful. A textile agency. Can you explain just briefly a little bit what that actually means?
3: Well, it's a very old business. Our business is 62 years old this year. So that's a long time ago. Um, Originally what it meant was when travel I think definitions are important, when travel was limited, because in the fifties and sixties people weren't traveling um basically a mill in Italy, let's say, which my father worked with, lots of mills in Italy, they would send him by ship or whatever they shipped in those days. It wasn't like air cargo or Federal Express. They would ship their collections in the price list and then the salesperson would generate inquiries for those products. And they would, um, cable their information back and forth. (laughs) I remember going to his office as a kid and seeing his little cable things that he had, and that was how an agency worked. And maybe he would go to his source once a year or twice a year. Um, and that was the business. And then over, over time, in my career, it changed a lot because the, um, the so-called agent became a marketing person and a creative person because you started to design what you wanted to sell and you started to mm. put you know, the elements of the product that your market needed that might be different than the other markets. So you became more than just a, a person taking samples from place to place. You became a person that was integrated in what was being sold. So I don't know what the title of that is, but I call it marketing product development That's
1: interesting and have the types of entities that you have been selling to also then evolved over the years
3: oh yeah of course in the old days um there uh, there was a garment factory and like i grew up in canada and there were garment factories everywhere and they owned the brands and then they sold to mm. the retailers that was really the I garment the what do you company... mean the
1: garment factories own the grant brands
3: well, there'd be a garment factory on um, in Toronto on Spadina. Let's say it was a street, and mm-hmm. they would have like 150 workers and that buzz of sewing machines, and they would they would have their own brand, and those were the brands that sold. Oh, to- I
1: see, I see. Yeah, so the manufacturer and the brand were one entity. Yes, mm-hmm.
3: and that's of course because then- there are no factories in Canada and the United States virtually anymore, and they were all of them were there. Um, so that was the first big change in my career. And then the second thing was brands became marketing companies. So, for example, Levi's used to have their own factories, and mm-hmm. they don't anymore. Wrangler used to have their own factories. I think they still have one. But most of the – all the companies had their own factories. I think the first company that didn't have their own factories and had a brand was that I was aware of was Marks & Spencers. They had a really huge market share in England, and they had no factories. They had suppliers. Um, and sold their own brand in their stores. They're the only ones that were really doing that in the seventies, eighties.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you say this because one of the things that you know that I we've talked about on the podcast, and I've also written about it is one of my questions always when you know I get when we get, when I get inquiries like, oh, you know, we're a responsible or a sustainable company, and we're looking for a manufacturer. Can you help us find? A supplier and I'm always like, well, the first question you have to answer is why aren't you doing the production yourself? And I don't mean to suggest that brands should always do their production themselves, but if it's only because, you know, you want to push the financial risk onto someone else, it's probably not a, well,
3: a, that's exactly, that's exactly a good and enough Le-
1: reason. That's
3: exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. And Levi's was a perfect example. When I was a first vendor to Levi's, they put me into a kind of a class for dockers, for example, they put me in a class for t- my teacher was someone who worked there in the factory in Knoxville, Tennessee. His name was Charlie Brown. And Charlie said that I could, we could not sell him unless we spent two or three days with him in Knoxville learning quality control. So he was a factory engineer guy and he had a team of guys and we literally stayed there as a vendor for two, three days. And he taught us everything. And eventually Charlie was let go and his whole team was let go because they put the responsibility back to the vendor. They didn't want anything to do with it, and they closed their factory.
1: So what kinds of clients are you selling to now? Are you selling still to garment factories but overseas, or are you working directly with brands? Yeah, now, the uh,
3: orders, now the orders are initiated by the brands and the retailers. So we we solicit them, we show them the products that we develop or that we think are appropriate, and they pick mm-hmm. it, and then we send them to the factories of their choice.
1: But is your client... The financially speaking, is the are the fabrics being purchased by the factories, or by the brands?
3: Legally, by the factories; mm-hmm. morally, by the brands. So the brand, hmm, say, interesting. The brand will say we need seventy-five thousand yards of this on such such a delivery date, and then the order will actually come from the factory. But they they're the ones that place the order um, by email or by by yeah you know, generally by email.
2: When Andrew speaks, uh, it makes me always think what was missing in my design course, uh, in my education. It's like the the understanding of what a supplier does and what a brand does and the intersection of the two. And um, I wish we had one day or two days or a week as a quality control and then... A week as garment makers uh, you know and and no one has ever taught me that they only told me about the pretty designs and the conceptualization of things not even the commercial side of things they taught me and so that was deeply missing and that's why i had to on my own back do three years of unpaid internship to fulfill these gaps and that's i think it's absurd and uh, what's really missing in the education system at least when i was um studying in italy i'm not sure if now it's a, there's a bit of change no. but yeah no. this is something we've heard from uh, several different people
1: and if you're interested in learning more about this we recommend going back to check out episode seven when we talked to michaela Scholz, an american trained designer who ended up working for a garment factory in bangladesh and to episode 20, when we talk to Tara St. James, who, among many other things, is an educator at FIT. Jesse, I'm also curious your take on it. Because you, as a merchandiser, were basically on the receiving end, like sitting in, in China, working for a brand, but liaising with the factories. But then on the brand side, liaising mostly with with these
0: designers who had the kind of training that people like Marzia had, right? Well, I feel... I resonate to what uh, Mazila said just uh, now, and what I felt most missing today is actually the education of business, kind of business practice. No matter how beautiful the design it is or how uh, good the idea it is. and and that's the places I feel in my past experiences. That's the let's where uh, we have the biggest conflict, or let's say let's where we have the widest gap. That usually when I was working as merchandising manager, usually when the buying team insists to push an idea where factories strongly go against it, it's because of the cost or because of the workmanship or because of all the technical and quality control challenges, which is not acceptable for buyers. And most of the cases, not understandable. They don't understand why. It looks so simple. It looks so so neat. How come it's so expensive? How come it's not possible? So for me, I think today I would say, yes, making is very important to have this knowledge of how government is made. And on top of that, I think it's also interesting to have a kind of business training.
3: I would say this is from a financial point of view. It's also really interesting. So I produced a gene class for FIT for 15 years. And my students, when they graduated, made anywhere between $42,000 and $45,000, depending on where they worked. My daughter, who was um, not a good student, was sent to a garment factory and had to work in the garment factory and then had to work in trading and the business trade. And she spent 18 months, what I call an apprenticeship, and when she came back, her salary, without a degree, was 50% higher than my students graduating. Because she, hmm. she could go instantly to work. She knew exactly what to do in the work immediately. Whereas my students needed like a year or two years training. So I, I told this to FIT many, many times that we could increase, and we should as an academic institution, increase the value of our students through apprenticeship programs, which would be working with factories and working in business, not just, you know, interning and doing. Interning is not necessarily helpful.
0: Is that because, or can we root it out because the value of makers, uh, the value of making process and the value of manufacturing is not emphasized and not, uh, how you call that, not. um,
1: Why weren't they up for it?
3: Um, Because the school systems are very complicated to change their curriculum. So in, in FIT's case, and I, I'm not part of the management, I'm so far away from that, where I always was so far away, but, but they're what's called a SUNY school, and it's a group mm-hmm. of schools, and I think they have to do the same for all the schools. So it's not like an easy thing to change the way you do business, the way, yeah. the way you educate. So I think that um, it was funny because we always thought about doing a school. And the one thing I learned um, in talking to people at different universities was I would never go through an academic institution. (laughs) That's
1: really interesting. So uh, it's so, I mean, you know, how can you start to figure out how to do something better when there isn't that sort of shared foundation as to how something, how something is made?
3: It's the same as if you've never cooked, how can you properly appreciate a beautiful dinner? Yeah. You've never chopped and you've never prepared and cleaned. (laughs) How can you appreciate what that person went through to make you dinner? Yeah.
1: yeah. And one of the things you said last time we talked, Andrew, um, caught caught my attention and you said, you know, the thing that I I really was passionate about when, you know, as I was working in this industry was I really wanted people to understand the mill side of things. And I would like Would you be able to give a little bit of context for that statement? Why was explaining the mill side of things so important to you and to whom specifically did you, did you want to explain it?
3: Um, well, over the years, in the beginning, when you're young in the business, you just want to be invisible. (laughs) (laughs) So, so as you bump into problems, you, you consider them as your, as your problem. But as I got older in the business, um, I got frustrated because um for instance lateness um customers would go you know completely maniacal if there was lateness involved but they never ever wondered you know what why was that and how much did it affect your company and and maybe there was a there was a flood or maybe there was whatever it was was the reason of the lateness or maybe one of your machines broke or or some some sort of out of control element happened well, there was no there was no um interest in it there was no it was, it was your problem you should you should not have those things go down and things like that so over the years like i got i remember really specifically one case um one of the mills i was working with had created a new product using ceramic yarns in on the inside of a, of a yarn and the designer promised a delivery date um for his new development and he was late three times. And the people went crazy. They actually put my relationship in play with the company, saying that we didn't keep our promises. But they never understood that a ceramic yarn is not an easy thing to just, like, do. And so I think that was always frustrating to me, that people didn't understand what it is they were buying, what's involved in it, and had no empathy for the supply side. Um, the supply side was regarded generally as an entity that was, um, requested for something, um, often in good, in good faith, they gave a delivery and often they couldn't keep it or they, they changed something and that, that was a damaged, an element to damage the relationship. When it came to sustainability, I got frustrated because the assumptions that people had were wrong in many cases. And that frustrated um, me a lot. They didn't understand what, for instance, Let's say aniline. So aniline is a chemical that recently was an important discussion because aniline is inside denim. People were testing genes like crazy to see how much aniline there was in it. But if you said to somebody, Would you like natural indigo? They would they immediately believe that had something green about it. But it has much more aniline than a synthetic indigo. So <laughs> these kinds of assumptions, you know, or One cotton versus another cotton. This one is better than another one without any data. So these things frustrated me, and um, they just assumed things they read. And I think that's another thing that was frustrating was that most of the news about our industry came from the press. I mean, like from, let's say, you read something, an article in um, Time magazine, or you read something in The Economist. Well, the person who wrote that article generally was not an expert in the industry and spoke to people that they thought were who might or might not be. And so that was that news was being um, distributed willy nilly. And the industry had no control over what was true and what was not true. It's still happening. It's worse now with the internet. So those things frustrated us. So um, I, that's how I got really involved in wanting to do um, something which would help change that.
1: And how did that, can you take us through how that led specifically to? Kingpins and ultimately to Transformers?
3: Well, they're different. Kingpins is a commercial. So we started Kingpins to sell more yeah. denim, really, honestly. We just created a little, the perfect trade show. We created in the beginning a trade show that I wanted to go to. So I'd gone to trade shows my whole life that I didn't want to go to. It was strictly mercenary, those trips. But I created a show that I thought was fun and would, I'd want to go to. So that's how it started. And then um as the show got bigger, which we never really thought of it as having a chance to be bigger or should, but when it did get bigger, we realized that we had a lot of people in our location and that we could take the opportunity to create seminars that were a bit more spicy than what were generally being done. And, um, and then started to teach um, different things and let different speakers have a chance to explain what it is they did. And then, Those were short because they were during our show and we thought it was insufficient. So then we started something called um, the Kingpin's transformers that started in 2014. And in my mind, the word transformer is a really important word because there are in my mind, two different entities in our industry or everywhere. There are adopters and there are transformers. Adopters are people that you know look at different technologies and pick the one they want. Are you a mm-hmm. Samsung user or are you an Apple phone user or are you a Google phone user? You're an adopter. A transformer is the company that produces those things or the entities that work in the in the microchips or who work on the software or who work on the the, gla- uh, the 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 materials inside the phone. so those companies create new ideas they create new things in our industry. It would be companies that create new chemistry. It would be companies that create new machines, um, new ways of doing things. And those companies, those transformer companies, were not being heard. So we created a special day for Kingpin's Transformers, and we would settle on one subject, and we would go through that entire subject through the entire supply chain. Our first Kingpin's Transformers in 2014 was on water. And the first person who spoke spoke about sprinkler systems. Because I didn't think that people in the audience even knew that there were different kinds of sprinkler systems or how sophisticated they could be, they could be and how that costs money so that you could actually have a, a sprinkler system that uses very little water, um, but it costs something. So when somebody asks for a dollar or a penny a pound or two cents a pound more in cotton and they want to invest it in these sprinkler systems, you know why would you not want to pay that? Why would you not grant them that opportunity? So the first one was on water. The second one was on um, garbage, waste. And the third one was on chemistry. So that's how it started. And then we all got frustrated and said, we have to do more, not just talk about things.
1: And that is what led to Transformers Foundation. Yes. Before we get into Transformers, I just briefly want to go back to Kingpins. Why do you think all these trade shows that predated kingpins. Why do you think they were so boring? Why do you think they were so bad in the first place?
3: They still are because they, um, because they are not people from the industry. They're people from show business. They don't have a stake in the, in the, in the subject. I mean, bless their little hearts. I mean, they're all great companies and I, and I love them all, but they don't have the same stake every day in the industry that I do. They don't get up or dream about denim.
1: That is interesting too because a, like couple of word phrase that I think we come back to every episode somehow one way or another is this word skin in the game. And often when we are talking about that we're talking about financial skin in the game, but I think that this is interesting too is that even like That it's a, it's a phrase that matters even when we're thinking about how we communicate about what we do as an industry.
3: And what's something I look at when I meet people is, um, passion. Mm. Is there passion or is it just a rational, um, assessment? I think passion will always lead you to, um, a different zone
1: well i want to go I want to dig deep on that, but before we do, I want to turn to you, Marcia, and ask you, you know we've talked on and off, I think, over the last nine months or so, and one of the things that you've often expressed to me is frustration with how stories about sustainability are told, which in some ways is also I think what we've just heard a little bit from Andrew and it it seems to be something that runs through your work with Cotton Diaries and now with Transformers but what was it specifically that attracted you to Transformers and and made you want to be a part of it?
2: Well exactly what led me to found uh, Cotton Diaries I think Um, It's hearing from the people that actually work in the industry. And I think I really resonated with uh, what Andrew said about doctors and transformers. And often we look at this idea of an expert that um, sits behind a screen that crunches numbers and uh, makes up sustainability strategies without having been on a factory floor. Or on a cotton field, or I don't know any of that, and so, and I was guilty of that in my during my career. When and the more I realized, the more I wanted to be on the supplier side because that's where the knowledge was, uh, and it was really deep knowledge. The fact that also when Transformers Foundation talks about um, it represents the denim. Industry and the denim supply chain, and it doesn't only represent denim garment manufacturers or males but also cotton farmers as well as um, chemical companies as well as um, manufacturing of uh, machines and so like who wouldn't go there and just learn from all these people and from all these different perspectives and so that's um that's really interesting for me, and uh, I think I mean we should aspire to listen to more of our variety of voices like we do in Transformers Foundation, and I wish to do more of that I think when you when you learn about all the different perspectives and why someone would do something, then you you really can inform your um, i mean in terms of sustainability, your sustainability strategies that are actually doable and actionable and are not just fun, pie in the sky and good marketing uh, phrases and catchwords. and you know they they really hold substance and I think that's uh, what inspires me about Transformers Foundation is that there's a bunch of people within the supply chain that really understand how to action and how to how to make things better I don't know if that answered your question fully but
1: Definitely. And I think it it really resonates with me personally, too, because that was also why I moved to Cambodia and became a factory manager, a garment factory manager. And it was actually in the process of suddenly finding myself doing things that my old self would have probably condemned that I started to realize that, oh, it's it's actually not that simple. And how decisions get made isn't that simple. And that nuance and that complexity is... I think, you know, often really missing in the conversation as to why do people make the choices that they do and what are the things that are driving that and the different risk profiles of different actors at at each step of of the chain. And
2: can I add one more thing? Yeah, of course. I think what really frustrates me in general in life is that people operate in silos Mm -hmm. and they understand only the thing that they do or they think that the process immediate next step or the immediate previous step, and they don't understand the full uh uh chain of things. Uh, yesterday I was at the exhibition of um uh of a really important photographer uh um that was I don't know how to describe it to, to be simple, but um, she was portraying the stories of the indigenous people in the Amazon forest, the Yanomamis. And the, the main um, head of the Yanomami, that was uh, the, the, these indigenous people, that was, um, it, it was talking about her as the bridge between this culture and the Western culture and how it was really important and crucial for the fight for indigenous land rights. And I think, I mean, I, I, I aspire to be a tenth of a tenth of that, to, to be a bridge between um, the supply chain and um, some of the voices in the supply chain and actually the rest of the world and in specifically to brands because I've been working in within brands and I understand where they come from. So I think the only contribution I can make is that building a little bit more of that bridge i'm not saying that I will be a full one but uh, probably with you
0: kim and jesse
2: and andrew and others we can really um yeah bridge that gap
0: it um remind reminded me kim and i we uh we interviewed um a supplier i think yeah In season two or season one, anyway. And uh, shortly after that, we read a story, an interview on a very famous magazine about this supplier. It's written in a very, in a way, everyone will will believe the fault is on the supplier side. So since then, I I was quite upset. I was thinking, uh, I resonated a lot to what Andrew said, that suppliers or manufacturers usually have no control at all over the reports or stories or news on the press. And sometimes after this story happened, sometimes I'm thinking, even they had the chances to be interviewed by a famous or powerful press, for lots of reasons, they will not speak out the very truth happened on their side. They just cannot or will not, because bonded by lots of other things.
1: And it reminds me of a quote which I've quoted before on the show, and I, I wanna quote it again. And it's a, a quote by the Nigerian author Chimamanda Adiche. And the quote is power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. And on that note, we're going to close part one of this conversation, but be sure to tune into part two, which we've also released today, and during which we talk about the launch of Transformers Foundation in 2020, what exactly Transformers is, and why suppliers from the denim industry have come together What keeps other product segments of the fashion industry from having something similar? And what are the eight ethical principles and how exactly will they serve as the quote-unquote constitution for the forthcoming Ethical Denim Council? Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast.
0: We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with this nursing is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy.
1: To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage.
0: Thanks for listening, and see you next week.